Is the use of psychedelics discovered in one of the most ancient texts in the world? Find out now. Hi everybody, Jason here. Today we have another episode of The Sacred Word. And for those new to the channel, The Sacred Word is a video series where I unpack some of the greatest and most ancient texts of the world. And today we are going to be speaking about one of the oldest texts known to man, the Rig Veda, which is actually the oldest Hindu scripture and was an oral tradition before it became a scripture. And so we are going back to anywhere between 1700 and 1000 BCE here. Usually scholars will say 1500 to 1000 BCE, but they've stretched that time frame out. And if you speak to a lot of Hindu scholars in India, they believe the Rig Veda actually is much older. But the Rig Veda was an oral tradition before it became a scripture. And so we really don't know how old a lot of the Vedas are. And there are four Vedas and the Rig Veda being the oldest. And the Rig Veda and the Vedas are believed to be the beginning of what we know as the Vedic culture that began sort of in this Indus Valley region before it moved down to kind of the Gangetic Plains of India. And so that is what has become what we would call Hinduism today, you know, the, 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 the evolution of the Vedic culture to Hinduism as we know it, right? But then we have this ancient text of the Rig Veda. And in the Rig Veda, there are a lot of things that a lot of people can't understand. And when a lot of people translate the Vedas in general, and because we don't have much information of what life was kind of like back in the Indus Valley region and you know, and, and in places like Harappa and these places, Mahendradaro and Harappa, then there are a lot of things that are a mystery to scholars and translators. And like there are rituals that people don't understand the, the significance of. And there are a lot of things that we've kind of lost the meaning for. And one of those things that we find in the Rig Veda is this idea of Soma. Soma was a, a drink, right? It was this particular brew that they would use within Vedic rituals. So we have this idea of Soma Yajna. So Soma Yajna is this Vedic ritual where we use the Soma drink as part of the Vedic ritual. And so this apparently came down from the Rishis to the Brahmins, like the, the priests of the time. And so we have this Soma Yajna where we use the Soma drink, but no one really knows what this Soma drink is or was, we have no idea. But there is a lot of speculation as to what the Soma drink was. And I'll go through that today, but I'll also go through the actual evidence of Soma being mentioned in the Rig Veda. So before I read the passage of the Rig Veda, I want you to realize that the Vedic ritual and sacrifice, when we look at it through the Vedas, is unthinkable without the Soma juice or Soma drink or whatever you want to call it. So to give you a little bit more information on what Soma is from what we can find in the text is it is this kind of pressed and filtered juice that was added with water and milk during a ritual or sacrifice. It was actually thought of as the single most important oblation in special public sacrifices. So without the soma, the public sacrifice was not complete. We needed the soma juice. And as I said, it's a mixture of soma, milk and water. The drink itself is invoked as King Soma, the guardian of the body who bestows immortality on those who engage in this ritual and sacrifice with the Soma drink. 
Soma can also be addressed as the drop or Indu in Sanskrit. And you'll, you'll hear the drop in the, the passage that I will read to you. So as I mentioned, Soma is invoked as kind of this deity of King Soma and leads to this idea of immortality. Now, what does that mean? Are we translating it the right way? Are we looking at this scripture in its right context? And this is what I'm going to get into later because this is where things get tricky because there's a lot of disagreement as to whether Soma is some sort of psychedelic, so some sort of hallucinogenic plant, as opposed to being non-hallucinogenic. There are two schools of thought here. But first, I want to read to you this passage of the Rig Veda. And this is the ninth mandala of the Rig Veda, only a portion. And this whole section of the book, the ninth mandala, is dedicated to Soma itself. So let me read to you this wonderful passage. I have consumed the delicious drink of life, knowing that it inspires good thoughts and joyous expansiveness, and which all the deities and mortals seek together, calling it honey. And going within, you become boundless, and you will avert the wrath of deities. Rejoicing in Indra's friendship, O drop, create riches for us, like an obedient racer, i.e. a horse, carrying a burden. We have drunk the Soma. We have become immortal. We have gone to the light. We have found the gods. What can enmity do to us now? And what injury by a mortal, O immortal one? When we have drunk you, O drop, pacify our heart. O famous Soma, be kind like a father toward his son, thoughtful like a friend toward a friend. O praiseworthy Soma, extend our life so that we may live long. I have drunk these glorious drops of Soma that widen me, yet my limbs are tied together like bullocks yoked to a cart. Let them protect my foot from stumbling, and may they ward off lameness because of imbibing the drop. Inflame me like a fire kindled by friction. Make us far-seeing. Make us richer, better. For when I am intoxicated with you, O Soma, I consider myself rich. Draw near and make us thrive. Impelled by a powerful mind, may we enjoy you like wealth inherited from a father. O King of Soma, extend our life as the sun expands the days of spring. King of Soma, have mercy on us for our welfare. Know that we are devoted to your laws. O drop, passion and enthusiasm are stirred up. Do not deliver us to the whim of the enemy. For you, O Soma, are the guardian of our body. Watching over men, you have settled down in every limb. If we break your laws, O God, have mercy on us like a good friend, making us better. Let me join closely with my compassionate friend, so that he will not injure me when I have drunk the drop. O Lord of bay horses, for the Soma that is stationed in us, I approach Indra to prolong our lifespan. Weaknesses and diseases have gone. The forces of darkness have fled in terror. Soma has climbed up in us, expanding. We have arrived where our lifespan is prolonged. The drop that we have drunk has entered our hearts, an immortal within mortals. O forefathers, let us serve that Soma with the oblations and abide in his mercy and kindness. Uniting in agreement with our forefathers, O Soma, you have extended yourself through heaven and earth. O drop, let us serve with an oblation. Let us be masters of riches. You protecting gods, speak out for us. Do not let sleep or harmful speech seize us. Let us, always dear to Soma, speak as men of power in the sacrificial gathering. O Soma, 
You give us the force of life on every side. You who have found heaven and watch over men, enter into us. O drop, summon your helpers and protect us front and back. So as you see in this part of the Rig Veda and the Ninth Mandala in general, is that they are speaking about some sort of plant substance called Soma. Now, where a lot of the, the debate comes between Hindu scholars and people in general is whether they are talking about something symbolic in nature or something metaphorical that we don't understand from our certain vantage point that we've lost contact with from that Vedic culture and tradition of that time. Now, we can't exclude that. We can't say no altogether that that is not the case because as we know with a lot of sacred texts, a lot of sacred texts are more metaphorical and symbolic within their own sort of mythological framework that have a deeper meaning to us as opposed to taking them literal as we see with a lot of religions these days where people take the stories as literal and you know once you take it literal then all sorts of fundamentalism and confusion comes about but in saying that even if we look at it from a metaphorical or symbolic standpoint they still are speaking about some sort of substance that is used within Vedic rituals and sacrifice, right? And there's definitely an emphasis on immortality within this passage and an emphasis that whatever this plant substance is allows them to reach higher states of consciousness and allows us to abide in our Atman nature, that which is Brahman, right? So Brahman being a focal point within the Vedas itself. So you see that there is this relationship between soma immortality and the ultimate reality of the world within this passage and why it's important to take the soma drink in a ritual to get you closer to brahman as you see in the passage they refer to soma as you and this king soma that is kind of like a, a deity in itself right so soma itself is almost like a god to these people practicing the Vedic rituals and sacrifices of the time. And so there's obviously something special about this Soma plant. You know, we can't deny that. But can we go as far to say it's a psychedelic or, or some sort of hallucinogenic substance? Or is it just non-hallucinogenic that some scholars actually believe? Well, we will unpack that. And I want to uh, explore with you some of the candidates for what the Soma plant could be. One of the popular candidates that was expounded within the last hundred years was by banker and amateur ethnomycologist Gordon Wasson. Gordon Wasson actually believes it is the fly agaric mushroom, so what we would call the Amanita muscaria. Now, I'm sorry if I butcher some of these names of these plants during this video. I apologize in advance. But he believes it was the Amanita muscaria. Now, as time went on, a lot of people began to disagree with Gordon Wasson's theory that it is Amanita muscaria. A lot of that came from Terence McKenna, the famous psychonauton and ethnobotanist. Terence actually cites Wasson's own failed attempts to induce a psychedelic experience through Amanita muscaria because Gordon Wasson had a lot of failed attempts and, and actually didn't reach any sort of altered state of consciousness. So Terence actually cited a lot of that to kind of disprove that it is Amanita muscaria. In attempting to disprove Wasan, McKenna actually had his own theory of what Soma is. He believes it is Psilocybocubensis. So for those of you who don't know, Psilocybocubensis 
is an hallucinogenic mushroom that a lot of us often know as psilocybin mushrooms or magic mushrooms. And it is found in cow dung. Usually all over, especially Asia, you find magic mushrooms everywhere, or psilocybin in cow dung. But only in particular parts of the world, certain climates can only facilitate this effect. And it is interesting because, especially if we look at India, the cow is perceived as being sacred, right? And a lot of people, and including McKenna, believe that this is the case because the cow is the embodiment of soma. The cow has soma within itself and it comes out, you know, through its dung. And so we reap the benefits of ingesting these mushrooms. And many of you may already know this, but psilocybin and other psychedelics have the ability to heal us at a deeper level. And I'm talking about the level of psychology and consciousness itself. And so they have an ability to heal and remove certain things about ourselves that have been impeding our life in general. Like if we suffer from chronic stress and anxiety and so forth, there's a lot of study with microdosing, especially with psilocybin. And so there are these uh, properties with psilocybin that are very beneficial for human beings. Not to mention that it is an hallucinogen, but there are also other healing properties. And so it's a very strong candidate for being soma, which we'll come back to later. But the next candidate for soma is actually this idea of halma in Iran that we find. Now, what is halma? Now, halma is, again, another mysterious plant like soma. No one really knows still what halma is in Iran, but it seems that there is a, a, a linguistic relationship between soma and halma. So it is believed that soma is the cognate of the Iranian Homa, which is a divine plant in Zoroastrianism and in later Persian cultures and mythology. In the Zoroastrian Avesta text, they actually mention Halma, and this is in the Avestan language. So it is believed that both the Avestan Halma and the Sanskrit Soma derived from the Proto-Indo-Iranian Salma. Now, Salma, S-A-U-M-A, -A, so we can see a relationship there, right? And so it is believed that Soma and Halma are the same plant. Now, this is only a theory and only speculation, don't get me wrong, but we do see a linguistic relationship here, which may explain why also Halma in Iran is still a mystery itself. But that doesn't explain what Soma is. But I wanted to mention that to you before we go any further into exploring some of the other candidates, because some people actually have some candidates for Halma that we will have to consider for Soma as well as I go further down the list. Okay, so let's get into some of the other candidates. And like I said, if my pronunciation isn't right, please forgive me in advance, but I'll quickly go through some of these and I'll give you some of my thoughts. The first one is Cianchum acidum. Now, Cianchum acidum is a flowering plant found in the valleys and subtropical mountains of the Himalayas. There is not a lot of information particularly about this plant, and it's one of the ones that are not really considered highly as a candidate for Soma. But because it originates in that particular part of the world, we have to consider it as a candidate for Soma. Now, the next one is Paganum hamala. Now, most of you will commonly know this one as wild rue, 
and it is found in the saline soils of temperate deserts and the Mediterranean regions of the world. There is actually a theory that this is the Halma plant that is mentioned in the Zoroastrian text, but it's still only speculation. Now we come to one of the more controversial plants in the list, Ephedra distachia, or Ephedra for short. Now, Ephedra is actually a non-hallucinogenic. Its chemical structure is similar to amphetamines, and its stimulating effect is more potent than caffeine, so its stimulating effect is very strong. And as a result, the effect of ephedra is this heightened sense of alertness and awareness, which is a part of the ephedra plant. So it's in some sense very similar to the effects of coffee, but it's, it's at a more heightened state of awareness and alertness that is produced from this plant. So ephedra is where we see a lot of diverse opinions begin and, and a lot of conflict begin between theories because the plants I've mentioned previously and the ones I'll mention after this one are mainly hallucinogenic plants. And so you have this ephedra, which is a non-hallucinogen. And so this is explained a lot by retired Indologist Harry Falk. Now, Falk believes that the Soma Halma mystery of the Indo-Iranian area is not related to an hallucinogenic plant. Now, this is kind of, you're stepping out of what people kind of generally feel about Soma, but we have to hear him out here. Falk said that when we study the Rig Veda, that there's actually no real proof of altered states of consciousness produced by Soma. And you could see with the passage I read before, it's not that there is a altered state of consciousness being described really, right? Like, I mean, they talk about immortality, they talk about abiding in some sort of state, but it's, you know, I know that he's, he's maybe going really into detail and exploring some of the details of the Rig Veda and, and the terminology, but it doesn't really explain a altered state of consciousness, so to speak. Even though we have the text alluding to immortality and, and all of these kind of deeper states of consciousness, Falk actually said that there is nothing shamanistic or visionary in the early Vedic or old Iranian texts. Now, that may seem deflating to a lot of us who are kind of hoping at some sort of hallucinogenic plant, maybe psilocybin, but often the case, as we know, that the truth is usually not as glamorous as what we make it out to be. So could it be ephedra? And is Falk actually right that the Vedic texts and the older Iranian texts don't actually mention any shamanistic or visionary experiences? So some would argue with him on that and say that, you know, in certain ways to translate the text that there are certain experiences that are described. But in general, I think that a lot of people agree actually with his conclusion that there are no experiences explained. Also in support of Falk's theory that it's ephedra are those in Ayurveda who believe ephedra is soma because ephedra is still used as a treatment for muscle pain, asthma, fever, and even problems with urination. The next plant is Nalumbo nusifera, or commonly known as the sacred lotus. Now, as you probably all know, throughout India and Nepal and 
you know, even in Pakistan and Bangladesh, this kind of general area of the world, South Asia, the sacred lotus is revered, right? It's, it's thought of as a sacred symbol. And we see it all through that region of South Asia, even Southeast Asia, that the lotus is sacred. Now, why people believe it is the lotus is because there are some descriptions within the Rig Veda that seem like they are describing the sacred lotus. So, for example, the lotus produces golden red flowers on stalks. And the text compares Soma to an arrow and the sun, if you can make a relationship there, which some people do. Also, other hymns describe Soma as having a ruddy radiance, which reflects the colors of a sacred lotus. Also, it is believed that the alkaloids in a sacred lotus are psychoactive, which apparently produce euphoria. I mean, there's not a lot of evidence on this, but that's what some people believe. Next is Claricep's purpurea, or simply known as the ergot fungus. Now, the ergot fungus grows on the ears of rye. But the problem with having ergot fungus as a candidate is that ergot can cause what is known as ergotism, which is an effect of long-term ergot poisoning. So it makes this one really problematic. But to give it a chance, it is believed that the neurotropic activities of ergot alkaloids may cause hallucinations, but also can cause convulsions and even death which makes this plant not really a reasonable candidate because you're cutting a fine line between taking ergot fungus and getting poisoned and you know having a hallucinogenic experience. It doesn't seem like a reasonable candidate. The next one is Sacham Bengalens, which is a variety of sugarcane that grows near lakes. Now, in tandem with this one, there's also a belief of a variety of sugarcane that is now extinct that may have had hallucinogenic properties from that particular region of the world. But this variety of Saturam Bengalens is actually native in India, Nepal, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. But to make a claim that this variety of sugarcane is Soma is pretty far-reaching, especially considering that there's not a lot of information on its relationship to Soma. The next one I want to consider is Mad Honey and Honey itself. This is kind of twofold because they're both honey. And you're probably asking, what the hell is mad honey? Now, mad honey is a type of honey that we find in Nepal. And we find this especially where the Gurung people are from. And so it's become part of the culture of the Gurung people, this particular honey. And it is famous for its hallucinogenic properties, but also its supposed health benefits. Mad honey contains granotoxins, and granotoxins are produced by rhododendron species and other plants in the family of Ericaceae. So the honey made from this nectar and so containing the pollen of these plants contains granotoxins, which is mad honey. And so mad honey is one that we could consider because especially of its location in the Himalayas. But we also need to think about honey itself, right? Because honey is actually mentioned in the text. And so are we just talking about a little bit of honey and milk and water together to make a, you know, a, a very sweet and tasty drink? I mean, that's pretty far reaching, but we have to consider it considering that honey is mentioned in the passage. Last but not least is an obvious one, marijuana. Now, marijuana is rife through South Asia. It's everywhere. 
it grows everywhere. I mean, I've walked through the Himalayas and there's just, there's wild weed everywhere. It's just, it's everywhere. And so there are different ways that marijuana is produced. We have bung, we have hash, and we have all of these other methods. And so we have to consider that marijuana may be so much, especially when we look at the sadhu and yogic cultures of India, where certain sadhu and yogic cultures and sects have a smoking tradition, the big hash tradition, where they just smoke a lot of hash. And so that is part and parcel of some of the yogic and sadhu cultures. And also, we have to consider that soma is bung. Now, this is actually a good candidate, maybe, because when you go to India, I don't know if you know this, but you can get some things like what is called a bung lassi. So you have bung in a lassi, which is you know yogurt and, and water, and it's a very tasty drink. I'm not saying bung lassi is a tasty drink. I'm saying lassi itself is a tasty drink. If you have like a banana lassi, or like some sort of fruit lassi, they're usually very tasty. But obviously, bung lassi gets you, you know, high as a kite. So we have to consider, especially like, because as the text says, that when they talk about milk and water, are they talking about bung? Who knows? But it is a candidate that has some sort of validity, especially because of bung and its relationship to lassi itself. And so in exploring all of those, what are probably the best candidates? Well, I would say it's kind of an either-or scenario, right? So it's either Soma was a hallucinogenic plant or it is a non-hallucinogen. And so I would say that Terence McKenna's idea of psilocybin is very high on the list. But we have to also add marijuana to that list, I feel, because of just the abundance of marijuana in that region of the world, especially up in the Himalayas. It's everywhere. And so we have to really consider that as well. Definitely McKenna's idea of the sacred cow and, and you know the psilocybin mushroom is very interesting. And I think it's a theory that a lot of people accept because in some sense it makes the most sense if we're talking it from a hallucinogenic perspective. But in saying that, I think also marijuana makes a lot of sense as well, as I mentioned, because of its abundance and because of its use in India. But as I said, it's an either or scenario. And I actually think ephedra is one that we ought to consider as the soma. But we have to then get out of our fantasy of soma being an hallucinogenic plant. And we have to just come back to the ground and, and it, maybe it's a, a non-hallucinogen. So I think we also have to consider ephedra because of its wide use still in Ayurveda and its ability to heighten your alertness and your awareness in the same way or even in a more potent way than what caffeine does. So we have to also consider that. So I think it's an either or scenario. I think it likely is one of those three, but I'm open to other suggestions. And we have to also consider the other ones that I mentioned because they are candidates to be SOMA, but some of them don't have a lot of information on their so-called hallucinogenic properties and so forth and so on. So it's hard to take any of those seriously. So guys, I hope you enjoyed that video. Make sure you like, subscribe, and if you wanna support my work, please head on over to my Patreon page. And I hope you're all doing well, having a great day, and I'll see you guys in the next video. Shanti, shanti, shanti.